Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. You're now tuned to Future Sense here on BFM 999 with myself, Nick Jeans, and my co-host, Steve McDonald. Good morning, Steve. It's me. Good morning, Nick. It's me. It's me. I couldn't get your name out there, McDonald. That's right. I'll let you off. Classic, classic uh, Scottish name there. <laughs> do, do you relate to your Scottish heritage? I certainly do, yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, my it's not all that far back, really. My great-grandfather on Dad's side okay. came out from Edinburgh. Huh. Yeah, so a fairly recent link there. Yeah, yeah. Well, my middle name is Scott, as you know. So I, I too also have a grand, a, a grandfather, a Scottish grandfather myself. Yeah, right. Apparently, yeah. yeah. Beat me up. <laughs> 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 I'd love to, and that's what we're going to do today, folks. We're going to beam you up here on Future Sense into, uh, well, among other things, we're going to take a bit of a look at uh, at the future, beam you up into a prospective future, just a bit of a take. We are, no actually, guarantees. yeah. So um, I, over the last week, I've been refreshing a list of predictions that I've been compiling for a while now from various sources, actually completely disconnected sources is what I like to find uh, <laughs> that, that actually concur, you know, that where there's a similarity of prediction mm-hmm. and coming from a completely different angle and I look for those overlaps and so I put together yeah. a, a list of interesting predictions of key events uh, and we'll probably look maybe about roughly 15 years ahead during this show uh, and you know I'm not saying that these predictions are going to come true or they're going to be accurate most likely they're not accurate but but what it does uh, lay out is a change trajectory and it gives us a, some clues as to how the world's going to be changing over the next 15 years or so and the kind of trajectory that we're going to go on and it's that's useful mm. fantastic and of course as always folks you can uh, communicate with us via the text line which comes up on the screen right in front of us here zero four three seven three four triple one nine zero four. Three seven three four triple one nine. If you haven't done it already, you should put it into your phone. The text number for all shows here on BFM for any engagement. We can uh, communicate with uh, us regarding stuff that we're talking about or anything you'd like to bring to our attention. And, and of course, there's a few interesting things in current affairs right now, aren't there? And we will be referring to those things. And when we look at uh, the future and through this morning, of course, the big story, I guess, in the last week, besides the election coming up, in the federal election here, is the um, is the change in status, so to speak, of Julian Assange over there in the UK. We'll take a bit of a look at some of the angles and some of the forces at play there, uh, which go to uh, well, to uh, one could say the deep state, um, if there is such a thing. And uh, as John Pilger, who was in uh, in town last week speaking, you saw him uh, speak, Steve, in, at the um, at the Cavan Bar Centre the other other week, um, last week Wednesday night. Um, we might talk a bit about him and where, where that's uh, uh, important because he's also, of course, a friend of Assange's. Has some points of view there, but uh, I also note that he, you know, he's really. Um, pushing the, the the barrow now in terms of what we're really doing to ourselves in, in terms of our, our journalism and our, our blindness. And I, I'm seeking this word in front of me here, this phrase I think he used called the submissive void. I think he talked about um, 
because uh, I listened to the recording of Pilger's talk the other night. He talked about in the introduction meeting uh, Lenny Reifenstahl, who is Adolf Hitler's uh, uh, great propagandist, and he met filmmaker, her yeah. filmmaker in yeah. the 1970s. And uh, she told him that the message in her films, the propaganda, and these days propaganda you could say is fake news, was dependent not on orders from above, like he, she wasn't told to produce these things in that way, but on what she called the submissive void of the public. And I thought that was a very interesting phrase. Yeah, I think the point that uh, Pilcher was making in relation to his conversation with her was that um, you know sh- she didn't have the impression that they were forcing this information down the necks of people, but that there was a void there which was was ready to receive, you know, whatever, whatever was uh, put out yeah. through the the propaganda films, and and uh, it was easily digested by the mm. general public. I think is what she was saying. And I guess what I'm bringing that up is: Are we now in another period of being somewhat as a populace in a submissive void? And if so, why? And uh, one of the phrases we're going to be using this morning a bit is the notion of uh, the collapse in confidence. In our in the powers of be in the systems that that govern us and rule us and the structures of society. Yeah, I think if we look back to that time uh, during the Second World War, you know, it's certainly an example of a, a regression of general values uh, from the sort of modern scientific industrial back to authoritarian, absolutistic mm. uh, kind of thinking. So it, there are some similarities there, certainly with the current times. Yeah, indeed. Uh, And already someone has texted in. Thanks for that. There was an ad on Israeli TV just before the elections uh, with a sexy girl spraying perfume on her hair from a bottle labelled fascist. Mm. And I saw it, says this writer on Spanish news. Well, SPS Spanish news. I don't know what that refers to. But also, of course, we've had in this last week the return of Benjamin Netanyahu for the fifth term as the Israeli prime minister. That's also a significant it is significant, and uh, that's an interesting uh, you know, ad for the hair product. I yeah. guess it holds your hair exactly where it needs to be, and it cannot move. Uh, very, very sort of rigid uh, fixing. Rigid fixing, although yes. uh, um, I guess you could also say that the boundaries of that sort of hair are, are kind of absolute, but uh, I'm not sure if that's really the case, whether the boundaries are that strict uh, over there anywhere in the Middle East. Well, I, I imagine that your hair wouldn't be really kind of soft to the touch. It would be rather sort of scratchy and a bit irritating. Oh, God. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. So, we are talking today about, uh, in one sense, the collapse in confidence in our systems. And I guess, in one sense, for many people, one could see that the arrest of Julian Assange after seven years of hiding in the Ecuadorian embassy in London, the WikiLeaks leader is now um, founder and leader is now arrested and in a, an English prison and what will be his fate. And for many of us, I think that uh, does display a collapse in confidence in the system as a whole. This man is an Australian citizen. Arguably, he's a journalist who simply uh, exposed uh, some of the machinations behind the scenes of of those in power of the deep state, perhaps, if you will, uh, whatever uh, whatever he did there, is he a journalist? Does he uh, does he deserve protection? Should he be uh, should he be charged and the like? And it's a very complex equation there. So we're going to take a little bit of a look at, a look at the situation with Julian Assange first of all. We are, and um, maybe just to step back for a moment and just put it in a, a larger context of um, one of the central themes of this uh, this show that we do is the significant paradigm shifts that are underway on the planet, and I say shifts. Uh, plurally because there's yeah. more than just one and we're talking yeah. about 
at a deep level, a deep analysis of how human consciousness is shifting and how that is changing human values and the actual change trajectory and the dynamics that take place, uh, which involve what I call a slingshot effect. So we're looking at a, a move ultimately beyond the modern scientific industrial paradigm and the mindset associated with that, which is an individually oriented mindset, which is very driven by individual success. Mm. And as the change unfolds, and this is the case with every paradigm shift in relation to human consciousness, is uh, as we shift from one to the next, the change trajectory actually takes us initially backwards to the previous value system, or mm. sometimes even further than, than the previous one, to older value systems, uh, which has the effect of building evolutionary tension, and it's like pulling back the elastic band on a slingshot. So. When you're going to shoot something from a slingshot, you want it to go forwards, of course, but you've got to pull the elastic band backwards to create the tension required to give it the momentum that you need to make the change. And that's mm. exactly what ha is happening right at the moment is we're sliding backwards. There's this regressive search that is happening to older values or through older value sets to try and find a way of coping with the increasing complexity in our life conditions. And um, that search is triggered by the fact that we realize at some point that our old values, in, in other words, I'm talking now about the, the modern scientific industrial values that we've been living by for the last few hundred years mm. are no longer cutting it. They're not solving the problems that are arising because the problems are too complex. And so we've got to find a new set of values. We can't see forward at this point. So we look backward and say, okay, maybe we need to go back the way we used to be. And that's taking us in this case, particularly back to the previous value set, which comes from the uh, authoritarian agricultural era of, of human existence, where thinking was very linear, very rigid. There was one right way to do things, and that right way was passed down from a higher authority. Mm. Uh, and that higher authority could be a number of different things. In many cases, it's a religious authority that gives you a list of, of rules to live by. Uh, and you, you've got to abide by that list very strictly, but also it can be authorities like governments, the law, you know, the military, those sorts of things. And and so we're seeing this unfold at the moment, this slip back into authoritarian behaviour. And um, we, we'll talk a little bit more about um, that on later on in the show, I think, in relation to the uh, the neoliberal uh, article that, yes. I, that I raised, Nick. Um, yes. So we'll come back to that. But yeah. immediately, let's just look at how this is playing out in relation to um, current affairs and Julian Assange. Mm. So um, one thing that's popped up on our radar is an article from earlier this year. So it was part, uh, published uh, March 6, 2019, uh, on Mint Press News, which is an independent news agency, I think based in the US, talking about negotiations between the International Monetary Fund and Ecuador. Yeah. And uh, if, if you haven't been following politics in Ecuador, when Assange was granted asylum in the embassy in uh, London, the president of Ecuador was uh, a guy by the name of Korea. Korea, yeah. And uh, he's since, uh, since then been deposed um, by a new president, Marino. Yes, Lenin Marino, interesting name, interesting Lenin, name. as in Lenin. <laughs> a absolutely, yeah. and, and certainly seem, there seems to be uh, evidence of this slingshot effect where the, mm. um, Ecuador and the government there slip backwards into a, a more absolutistic authoritarian kind of an attitude. Uh, and he's been in negotiations with the International Monetary Fund uh, for a loan of $10 billion. Mm. And uh, Korea, um, the, the deposed, or the, the now out of... Um, government president uh, has been tweeting about these negotiations and um, he said that um, 
there are a number of, of issues that are coming up in the negotiation process between Ecuador and the IMF. Now, the interesting thing here, uh, an interesting link back to Assange, is that WikiLeaks uh, have been also been leaking information about these negotiations. And uh, they released something that said that there were certain conditions put on the IMF loan, um, and, and they were specifically, I'm quoting uh, from this mid-press article, US government demands of, quote, handing over Assange and dropping environmental claims against Chevron, which is a big oil company. Which yes, has been, uh, polluting the rainforest in Ecuador for quite a long time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and poisoning many of its indigenous inhabitants, Indeed. according to this article. So, yeah. so uh, there are claims here um, that uh, the only way Ecuador was going to get this money was to fall in line with US demands of handing over Assange. And here we are. Um, I mean, this was in when, early March. Yeah. Here we are, just it's over happened. a month later, and it's actually happened. And of course, uh, Ecuador has secured the IMF loan. Yeah. And also, uh, we've, as Nick mentioned earlier, we have had uh, John Pilger here in town, yeah. uh, and uh, he pulled quite a large audience in the local sports centre, and uh, was generally talking about current affairs. You know, this this global values shift that's happening, uh, and the fact that. Uh, fake news is, is rife and he, he made links back to um, you know the time around the second world war mm. um, where propaganda uh, was the name for fake news back then yeah. um, but he was just saying look it's basically the same thing and there are you know, people with agendas and this is what they're doing manipulating public information and most people probably know just as a quick aside uh, of the uh, the story of edward bernays who was uh, sigmund freud's nephew who essentially um, basically seeded and began and started the the notion of marketing and the notion of propaganda in america in the 20s 30s and 40s and the whole structure of marketing and thus propaganda uh, took on this uh, this modern expression that we now have of the very sophisticated expression that we've had in the last period of time in, in the era of global mass media but it actually came from uh, from the psychology the knowledge of the of the psychological process of uh, edward bernays who was freud's nephew so it's pretty interesting little piece. It, it is many interesting people know and, that and you know it's, it's very much a product of the modern scientific industrial era i mean yeah. if you look at the marketing industry in general and uh, as i often say that you can liken the, the value set of the, the scientific industrial mind or worldview to that of a poker player <clears throat> and the restriction of information in other words not showing your cards is key to your power and, and the chances of your success mm. and as soon as you show your cards then basically the game's over so um, in the, the modern scientific, scientific industrial era um, there you know there have been uh, or well, there has been a lot of energy put into presenting a public image. I mean, this you know is a huge thing in the corporate world. Uh, there are professionals who do nothing but craft public images for organisations, and and the, the implication there is, of course, that the public image is not exactly the same as what's actually going on inside the organisation. You, you know, which would be revealing your your poker cards, and you don't want yeah. to do that because you lose your advantage. And so that uh, if you if you take that well, now you can digitally alter your your playing cards and show them anyway. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, this is my hand. Look, yeah, that's right. Oh no, it's not my hand. Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> so well, you in fact, I mean, there's this a very interesting point behind what you said there, <laughs> and that is that you can look like you put your cards in the table when you're actually not doing that's it right. right as a deception, of course. Um, but the the issue here is that when you take that idea, that public image idea, to an extreme, when it becomes extreme, then um, you know it becomes this, this uh, the same basically as the kind of propaganda that we saw during the the war. Yeah, 
Yeah. Also, just quickly, as another little aside to Marino, who's the president of Ecuador, as Steve's been explaining there, uh, is uh, also in, in a bit of a strife himself. And again, it's a bit of a, a bit of a, a double blind, a bit of a sort of backwards trip here, because he's actually been implicated in a, a major corruption scandal just himself, just two days before the IMF agreement was signed. So clearly there's a very personal thing there even for the president of Ecuador that he probably sees it as a bit of a way out of his own uh, his own puddle of muck yeah. that he may be involved in. So here we've got some alignment between information that was released by WikiLeaks uh, and uh, also statements directly made by uh, the former president Korea about the negotiations in relation to this IMF loan and then it's you know the, the fact that the IMF loan uh, has been publicly publicly confirmed, um, you know, just shows that the negotiations went forward. Um, if what President Korea is saying about these US demands are correct, then the release of Assange was a condition of the approval of that loan. And uh, there's something else that John Pilger mentioned during his talk was the fact that um, WikiLeaks released some time ago the US Army Manual on Unconventional Warfare. Ah, uh, yes, this uh, in, is a fascinating document. In 2008, uh, where it says quite specifically, and, and I checked this just to make sure that the information was right, yeah. uh, in fact, to paragraph 2-44. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Onwards uh, is headed financial instrument of US national power mm. and unconventional warfare, and it goes on to say that um, the financial policy and... and uh, cooperation or participation in uh, international financial organizations um, is a, a key part of um, uh, obtaining international influence and it actually lists in the manual here uh, the World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development and the Bank for International Settlements uh, as uh, US diplomatic financial venues to accomplish various uh, um, it's pretty straightforward, and, and I think most of our listeners would uh, subscribe to be aware of or certainly have suspicions that uh, the, the very su substantial amount of money that is lodged in bodies like the World Bank, Bank and the IMF and, and similar uh, are used, can be used, will be used, have been used, and are increasingly and boldly uh, right in the face of all of us being used to manipulate world affairs in these kind of ways. And I think, you know, I think most of us know that, and yet uh, there's a sort of disempowerment there because we simply aren't playing in the same, in the same uh, ballpark as the people with billions of dollars to throw around. Yeah, and I'd just like to make the point that uh, on this show we don't seek to make any particular, uh, you know, political uh, agenda our, our central purpose. We don't have a political agenda. We're simply uh, attempting to make sense of the present and the emerging future by looking at what's going on, basically, and, and just putting pieces of the puzzle together and, and making a deep analysis of the players, the key players. And so this is what we're seeing. You know, this is what has happened. Uh, Assange has been... Uh, his asylum status has been revoked by uh, Ecuador. He's been uh, ejected from the, the embassy in the UK. Interestingly, um, you know, he didn't walk out of his own volition. He was carried out by UK police uh, who were apparently invited into the embassy um, to do that. Which and is also a, a dubious uh, international law fact itself, isn't it? I think well, uh, yeah, police I, into I an mean, embassy. I, you know, I, again, I haven't verified this myself, yeah. but I understand that it is once you grant asylum to somebody, you can't That's uh, right. withdraw it. Mm. I understand that's mm. part of international law, but we, you know, we live in a time when the rule of law ain't what it used to be, mm. 
and uh, you know our very own government here in Australia is uh, guilty of also you know all sorts of breaches of international law um, because it suits them and, and this you know it comes back to the the worldview and the value set of the scientific industrial era which is um, different from the previous value set from the from the authoritarian agricultural era which was very strict and it was handed down from from on high um, so you know there were there were no there was no negotiation of that list of, of things I mean if you take from a Christian point of view, the Ten Commandments, you don't negotiate, you know, those things. They are what they are, and you either abide by them or you don't. But in the transition to the scientific industrial era, um, we discovered that we don't need to follow the higher authorities' rules, and that, you know, knowledge back in those days all came from a higher authority. If you wanted to know something, then you would petition to the higher authority for, yeah. for an answer. But yeah. In the, through the scientific revolution and the, and, uh, the uh, European Enlightenment and things like that, humanity came to a different worldview, which was that we could actually go and investigate in a using the scientific method and find the facts out for ourselves. And in that same process, we could then craft our own rules for living by. And when the key driver is success, then it becomes a slippery slope because you say, well, if I'm going to be successful, then I can't actually follow that rule. I just need to tweak it a little bit. Uh, and then so throughout the, the hundreds of years of this particular era, we've seen the slow degradation of rules and standards mm. and the rule of law. Morals, values and ethics uh, yeah, they, put to they, the side or manipulated or well, just they, adjusted they, they, to suit. Yeah, they became a movable feast. A movable feast, yeah, and, exactly. and anybody who has anything to do with the, you know, the Western legal uh, industry... <laughs> Um, or establishment these days will know that the law is a very, very, very much mm. a, a movable feast. And uh, if you've got a good barrister, then there ain't much that you can't get around. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, of course, it's not, uh, with all these things, it's it's not a straightforward, it's not black and white. And uh, there are many people who consider that Julian Assange, uh, for example, is not a journalist. And a piece by Peter Grester in the Sydney Morning Herald, Peter Grester was the journalist who was jailed in Egypt recently, um, obviously a pretty uh, dynamic and uh, forthright journalist in his own right. But he says in a piece uh, just a couple of days ago that, uh, uh, that essentially the Assange is not, uh, strictly speaking, a journalist, that he exposed, for example, in the uh, the leaking of uh, all the documents via WikiLeaks, dumping them onto his website, that some exposed the names, for example, of Afghans who had been giving information on the Taliban to US forces. He's, he goes on to say, journalism demands more than simply acquiring confidential information and releasing it unfiltered onto the internet for punters to sort through. It comes with responsibility. What do you think, what do we think about that? I mean, it's hard to know exactly what this, the truth is, of course, about how this all came about and what actually happened and where it came from and everything. But given that, is he a journalist? Does he deserve to be protected under the, the, the freedom of speech, freedom of, of the press in our societies? Uh, you know, from my point of view, I'd probably say he's more a publisher than a, a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not sure that that changes the argument, really. I well, mean, no, because uh, that puts the guard in the New York Times, the Sydney Morning Herald, and a number of other publishers who publish some WikiLeaks uh, documents uh, in, in at, at risk boat. as well. In yeah, the same boat. they're in the same boat, mm. exactly. And, and, you know, there are a lot of big issues which are challenged by this occurrence. Um, another one, of course, is uh, the whole idea of diplomatic immunity and, and uh, of an embassy being you know, your own states... Yes, within a ..within, within, a within another country. I always right? found that curious myself. It's curious, but, yeah. I mean, it's it's absolutely primary to the way that we conduct ourselves... Up, this, up to this point in on time. The, ..on the planet at the moment. And mm. if you take away that, that immunity, that, that safety mm. of having your own ground within someone else's country uh, and, uh, and knowing that, you know, it's safe and it's not going to be imposed upon, 
um, and, and it, you know, I, I guess we can't actually say that the UK imposed on the diplomatic immunity in this case because the story is that Ecuador has invited them in. So, yeah. but it, but even so, the the fact that um, the asylum pledge was was broken. Yeah, and I think that's really key in general in our societies now that it's very hard for anything to be absolutely safe and secure in yeah. any way. So again, it's another piece of information that we we receive and go like, oh. Even if I'm, you know, supposedly protected under these kind of laws, I'm not actually protected, and that yeah. has references to people's individual lives in small ways, perhaps. I think that's right, and and one of the outcomes is that we're seeing a gradual but severe degradation of uh, of confidence in government, yeah. and the, the you know the rule of law is not what it used to be. There are so many occurrences over the last uh, decade or or two where international law has been breached knowingly. Uh, and with disregard for the, for the consequences by mm. national governments, uh, and there is a long list of them, mm. including our own here in Australia. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's yeah, you know, if you can't trust the rule of law, uh, and you can't trust your government to follow the rule of law, then who do you trust? Mm. And um, and this is, uh, but actually, the early stage of a, a snowball, uh, you know, a sort of a gathering snowball of, of lack of confidence that we're. We'll talk about a little bit more shortly uh, when we start to look at the predictions for the next 15 years and how this is going to play out. Um, we also looked this morning, Nick and I, at uh, an article by Rudy Giuliani. Yes, yeah, I've got that up in front of me too. We're on the same page here, as yeah. usual. Uh, it is from January the 2nd, 2019, so it comes uh, a couple of months before the change in status of Assange, and namely his arrest in the UK. Um, but Giuliani, as Donald Trump, as the president of the United States' as lawyer still, he said this. What did he, talk, what did he say about uh, Assange, that he should not be prosecuted? Yeah, uh, he said that uh, Julian Assange has, done, has not done anything wrong and should not go to jail for disseminating stolen information, just as major media does. And he gave some examples uh, of, for example, the Pentagon Papers yes. were stolen property, weren't they, he yeah. said. Uh, it was yeah. in the New York Times and the Washington Post. Nobody went to jail at the New York Times and the Washington Post. Uh, and he said there were other revelations, for example, during the Bush administration, such as the Abu Ghraib issue, mm-hmm. which was the, the jail where there were all sorts of uh, human rights abuses going on um, in the Middle East. And uh, in relation to the leak there, he says all of that is stolen property taken from the government. It's against the law. But once again, it gets to a media publication. They can publish it. Um, for the purpose of informing people. So uh, Giuliani actually says, and I quote, you can't put Assange in a different position. He was a guy who communicated, unquote. Yeah. Uh, Giuliani in this article does say that uh, it's not right to hack, and I guess that might be where they seek to get Assange if they do get him back to the United States and charge him with something. Yeah, it remains to see if there's actually any credible evidence around that. I mean, I know there have been claims. He has a history. uh, He does. This is true. He does certainly have a history, that's for sure. Um, Perhaps best known for hacking NASA in his early days. Yeah, amazing. You are tuned to Future Sense. It's 9.36 here with uh, Steve McDonald, Nick Jeans. For all of you out there, strangers in a strange land, you're grokking Future Sense here on Bay FM. You're tuned to Future Sense. It's 9.42. Thanks for your texts. Uh, some challenging ones. We'll come back to those a little bit later on. Uh, and, uh, yeah, thank you for, for everything that you communicate on the text line. We're very happy to receive anything that you want to say, as long as it's fair and, uh, you know, uh, 
kind enough. Uh, the text line is 0437341904 0437341419. And we're talking today, uh, we're going to come to a bit of a timeline, a, a, a projected possible timeline going into the future, but we're talking at the moment about some of the major issues running here in the world uh, currently, and we've been talking about Julian Assange in particular. And uh, Rudy Giuliani, the uh, the lawyer of Donald Trump, uh, has come out a couple of months ago before the arrest of Assange, before the change in status, and said that he should not be prosecuted. Um, the question is, uh, well, the question is what's going on, on inside the administration? Because, of course, Trump, back during the election in 2016, actually he said oh, he, he, how he loved WikiLeaks. So it's a, it's a mixed bag, it's a confusing situation. Yeah, somebody sent me uh, a tweet by Trump you know, when which was a response to Assange's arrest, and it really gave me the impression that he was washing his hands of it. Like like he really, you know, was standing back and saying, oh, well. Mm. Um, Which is interesting, and it it poses the question, you know, what's going on inside the the US administration in terms of who's driving the bus, you know, who's been influencing things like the negotiations for the IMF loan with Ecuador. And uh, you know, is, is Trump fully aware, or is he is he uh, consenting to what's going on? Is he driving it? We don't really know. I had a, a phone call over the weekend from a good friend of mine and founder of the Arlington Institute, which is a futurist think tank based yeah. in uh, now in West Virginia in the USA. Um, and uh, John's a, a wonderful friend of mine. He is a former U.S. Navy jet pilot, actually. Um, who's uh, when he retired, he decided that he was going to become a a futurist. And uh, g'day, John, if, you, if you're listening. And uh, he he actually went on a tour of the world, I think this was back in about 1989, uh, with the intention of speaking to as many professional futurists as he could. And he, he said around that time, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, there was something like about maybe 200 people in the world who were calling themselves futurists. And uh, so he did that and you know got a really good feel for what was going on in the space. And then uh, since then, he's done a lot of very interesting work through the Arlington Institute. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said to me that it's just so hard to know what's going on and uh, he's finding this time extremely confusing because there is so much fake news out there it's very very hard to verify information and very very hard to know exactly what's going on and and who's driving the bus Um, and I I think um, for me it just reinforced the importance of the kind of deep analysis that we're attempting to do here which is looking beyond the the surface level facts and opinions and looking at the the um, deep human values that are actually driving behaviours here. And while we also can't be exactly sure what's going on, what we can do is we can identify certain themes and and, uh, trajectories Mm. for the change process that's underway. Uh, Folks, just quickly to the Arlington Institute is exactly that, arlingtoninstitute.org, if you'd like to check out that website, Arlington, as in the place in the USA. Yeah, so um, we're going to launch into some of this timeline. Where else are we going to? We, we will. Start? Yeah, I was just going to make the point oh, that yeah. um, one of the the problems that we're facing at the moment uh, politically is that there are a whole bunch of converging influences, uh, which are making it more and more difficult for people to maintain their confidence in government. And those influences include things like the corporate capture of governments. Uh, so as the scientific, industrial, corporate, military era is uh, coming to a close. Uh, It's a little bit like a a combustion engine that's almost at the end of its life. Um, And as the parts get older and they wear down, the engine actually runs faster and produces more power for a brief period of time just before it blows up. And that's because the the metal parts, uh, as they wear down, they're actually reducing the friction. Uh, you know, that normally keeps the the compression seal and those sorts of things on the pistons. 
Um, but, and just before they lose compression and, and blow, the engine is actually running faster than ever. And, and so we're seeing this um, scientific industrial paradigm uh, racing to in, in an attempt to try and maintain control, mm-hmm. maintain control rather, at, mm-hmm. in the face of increasing complexity. It's trying harder and harder, and to a certain extent it's, it's uh, actually more successful than it's ever been uh, in terms of control, but the indications are that it's about to blow you know within perhaps within the next 15 years and and so things like corporate capture uh, the narrowing narrowing of political choices so you know the political when we look at the the options we've got when we go to vote the spectrum is pretty narrow and uh, certainly we're seeing here in Australia there ain't much difference between what used to be called the left and the right of politics yeah, it seems like the centre is a, is, a, is a place that nobody wants to be to anyway. Like, uh, yeah, the, the, the excessive polarisation continues unabated in various ways, no matter what the claims are. But it seems like the centre, the place of perhaps perhaps some rationality at times regarding some issues is kind of void uh, at the moment. And uh, people are sort of aligning to the extremes as, a, as again, a place of uh, safety and security, perhaps. Like, yes, this is what I know. Certainly, the, the extremes are pulling in that direction for sure. But, you know, if you look at, for example, where about to uh, go to the polls here in Australia uh, at a federal election, and it, and recently the the economic policies were uh, in the media. You know, between the, the two major parties here, the, the Labor Party and the Liberal yeah. Party, and uh, there wasn't a, there wasn't much difference really. No. I mean, the, the, apart from some really minor tax issues. I should bring to the fore just in, in regards to this because it does go to uh, what we're talking about with with regards to the economic power that is employed by by governments around the world now to manipulate, particularly by the, by the US in the way that we're talking about, or, or are they with the, via the instruments of the IMF and the World Bank and the like? Uh, just mentioning the Adani situation, I was uh, with uh, a, a good member of, uh, of the local Greens uh, yesterday briefly, and he was telling me that one of the issues that he's been told, or the Greens have been told by the Labor Party, is that uh, because the question is why has Labor been very slow to come up against Adani to go against Adani just to to draw a line in the sand somewhere and they haven't really done that um, but it's claimed that um, this is because uh, Adani is uh, Australia is a signatory to the TPP to the Trans-Pacific Partnership that we all know about that uh, that Trump pulled America out of a couple of years ago but we are signatories to the TPP and this means that if Adani does not go ahead the potential for Adani to sue Australia for the loss of income through the TPP to the tune of something like $200 billion means that Labor is very reticent to go up against Adani and uh, and that proposed development. Now, I don't know if this is the absolute truth, but it, it, it does factor into this manipulation of affairs via economics, as we've seen before. So keep an eye on that if you're not familiar with that already. Do some research about it. I haven't had time to have a good look at that, but apparently this is the truth from inside um, the Greens here in, in Australia and what they've learned from the Labor Party. Yeah, certainly there's a general theme, team there of um, you know, what I call corporate capture of government uh, in various ways. And uh, with the narrowing of political choices, um, the, the absence of opportunities for the general public to significantly influence uh, political mm. policy you know, during a, a term, a government's term, and we, we only really have a chance to have significant influence at election time, and even then the choices that we're given uh, are essentially uh, you know, narrow, bad choices. Yeah. Um, and, and with the degradation of our political system, you know, and, and really it's disempowerment and it's manipulation uh, by, by money, essentially, 
what that means is that we're not attracting the best people into politics. And, uh, you know, it's it's so many people that I come across are shaking their head and say, look, there's no one here that I really want to vote for. Yeah. You know, no one, no one has any impressive track record or, or uh, they don't present themselves as being um, solid leaders. Uh, so what do you do? And um, again, this ongoing theme of the reduction of confidence in government, and uh, we'll get to that timeline shortly and look at a few potential future milestones around that. Um, what, it, what it is doing, though, is it's, it's giving uh, the, the absence or the lack of confidence, the, the uh, failing confidence in government, you know, it's giving power to momentum, to uh, grassroots organisations which are looking for ways to change the system in the absence of established and accepted and um, uh, you know refined ways of changing the system the, the kind of extremist thinking is growing and uh, one of those organizations that's popped up recently is something called extinction rebellion extinction rebellion strong terminology it, it is strong terminology mm. um, and so uh, i guess one of their key drivers is uh, climate change and uh, the, the risk that they see in failing to address uh, our adaptation to climate change or, or attempted control in you know, the absence of attempted control over the climate. Uh, and um, there's an article, uh, this is in The Guardian uh, recently, about uh, some activism that's been taking place in, uh, in the UK where uh, there have been some public protests uh, trying to, to bring attention to their organisation to uh, garner support, I guess, widespread support. And I've seen a few um, you know, people uh, on uh, in my sort of sphere of influence who've cropped up uh, posting the links to this organisation. Oh, I was just trying about to find something there on, yeah, on Extinction yeah. Rebellion, but it, uh, right yeah, no, it just, just leaped up in front of me before I had a chance to stop it. Because okay. there's been quite a big uh, um, uh, meeting in Hyde, in Hyde Park in, uh, in London with the Extinction Rebellion movement. And what, what, is it, what is it actually saying? For those who don't know what it actually is, the Extinction Rebellion movement, because it's a little hard to pin down precisely. I mean, clearly the, the notion that there is a sixth uh, extinction um, upon the planet is uh, is recently hit the press quite a lot. The idea that we are in the in the middle of uh, a, a vast level of change on that level on the, on the physical level, mostly driven in, in this view by by climate change of one sort or the other. Um, but the the notion of rebelling against that extinction, what does that look like? How do you do that exactly? What do you, what do we do? What, what what's the what's the impulse there? Yeah, I mean certainly people are quoting Gandhi and, and uh, what happened in India, uh, you know, as yes. an example. And yeah. uh, again, this aligns with this backsliding, this regressive search back to older values. Mm. And we you know we look back to sort of that colonial time, uh, where that absolute authoritarian kind of uh, control system was still in place in government in in the, the British Empire in this case. And uh, of course, Gandhi uh, led a, a non-violent, a massive non-violent uh, protest movement there, which was ultimately successful, of course. And and so, so people are looking to that kind of thing as an example. The question is whether, in this day and age, with um, with all the fake news and the anger that's growing, you know, around uh, hidden agendas which are being revealed and those sorts of things, is whether. Uh, we have a leader, you know, who will step up like Gandhi, who has the capacity to to temper uh, those, um, you know, those anger responses and those yeah. sorts of things, and, and avoid, uh, you know, clashes which could quite ultimately uh, turn into um, 
public violence and civil war. And, and we're seeing, you know, mm. the, the yellow vest movement in France as, a, as an example mm. of how things can uh, overheat. And um, there's certainly been a lot of violent riots and those sorts of things happening there. And yeah. And I guess it's a good place, perhaps, uh, we might, we'll take a break again in a second, but to launch into a bit of a, the predictions yeah. uh, regarding all these things, because I, I do know that uh, certainly this year in, in your little summary that we're going to be speaking to here, uh, there is, uh, in this year that we're currently in, there is civil unrest in various countries, uh, predicted anyway, and we, we are seeing that because people are frustrated, people don't know, and it's about the only place they can go to now, I think, is into the streets and do what they can to make a noise. Um, but the question is, uh, well, is that the most effective way of change at the moment? Yeah, uh, and so I'll, um, I, uh, later this week I will publish this uh, list of predictions that I've been working on. Um, yeah. We'll just speak to a couple of things that crop up at the moment. Uh, as I said previously, I'm not saying that this is going to be accurate. It most likely won't be accurate in terms of the exact timings. But mm. what it what it can do is it can give us a general feel for the trajectory of change and, and you know whether we are um, descending into any, a time of chaos before we emerge out the other side into a new, more complex and more capable order. And that, that's certainly my reading. Uh, mm. And I what I do is I look for sources that are completely independent of each other that are coming from very, very different analytical processes, but that converge and suggest that the same kind of themes are, are likely. And one of those sources is uh, Martin Armstrong from Armstrong Economics. Uh, it's I'm, I make, would like to make the point that it's not his personal opinion. He has a computer algorithm mm. which he has put together over a long period of time, and he, he himself is regularly saying this in his blog post that this is not his personal opinion it's simply what the computer algorithm is spitting out mm. and his algorithm has um, been put together using a series of cycles that martin has plotted out over the years and which very very interestingly uh, he has found you know once he's, he's put a list of the computer and the computer's been spitting things out he's found that some of his cycles coincide with natural cycles for example uh, the solar cycles yeah. and um, when you think about it it makes sense that I mean he's coming from an economic angle of course it makes sense that human behavior changes when the weather changes mm. obviously when the weather's hot you know people are, are feeling a particular way and when the weather gets cold um, you know societies slow down mm. and have to hunker down for the winter and those sorts of things so it does make sense that mm. that, that correlation would be there so his computer um, is saying that this year in 2019 we are going to witness a cycle which is a repeat of a cycle that showed up during the 1960s when we had the time of revolution and uh, mm. social protest um, and with the risk of civil unrest and uh, he mentions France and certainly we've seen that and um, he also mentions the USA and I, I get, we haven't really seen anything too significant this year in the USA that I can remember in the way of civil unrest but uh, it's early days. I think what we're seeing in the U.S. Is, is from this distance anyway is uh, a lot of small uh, interactions uh, both in the public sphere and in the in the town square where uh, difference is aggravated, exacerbated, played on uh, and violently expressed at times. And so a general feeling, I think, in the U.S. of unrest in in the in people themselves about without what's going doubt. on. Yeah, without a doubt. So I think we're certainly there. seeing that. We haven't seen major events in the U.S. in, in this time, as we've seen in a few other countries, including, of course, the, the Christchurch um, um, shooting recently, which is a, another symptom of our times, no doubt. Of course, and those sorts of things are very unfortunately a regular mm. occurrence uh, mm. in the U.S. Now, it, something else that's on the radar uh, for next month, uh, so May, 
um, is a global liquidity crisis. And this has shown up in Martin Armstrong's computer algorithm. Uh, and I've also been talking to another futurist friend of mine, Benjamin Butler, who runs the Emerging Futures Institute based out of South Korea. Um, Benjamin also has an economic background, and he said, yes, certainly there's uh, all the signs are there for a liquidity crisis to unfold in May. So um, there, you know, there could be all sorts of ramifications, global ramifications for that, and it, it's a global crisis, not uh, not mm. necessarily local, local to any particular country. So I think we've, we've got a few things on the radar this year that haven't uh, shown up yet, mm. which are yet to come. But the, the big, the really big uh, issue is um, Martin Armstrong has this thing called the economic confidence model, again, which is a, a cycle which he publishes on a graph, and uh, we will tweet a link to to uh, that particular graph later after the show and um, it's bottoming out so the, the economic confidence model shows a couple of different things and um, and these this algorithm is the product of overlapping cycles which Martin has observed through uh, his many many years of study the study of economic history and uh, and so you get a graph that has not regular peaks and troughs, but uh, periodic changes, and particularly in an economic sense, um, booms and crashes. And um, the uh, economic model is showing that 2020, and particularly the computer has said January the 18th, hmm. uh, tw- specific. 2020 is going to be a hard economic landing. Uh, where the economic confidence model bottoms out and, and that uh, he's talking very specifically there about public confidence in the economy and um, by association public confidence in government there mostly and, outside of the USA though Are you outside of the USA he predicts the economic impact he's predicting mm. is going to be mostly outside the USA yeah. and that is a product of the fact that uh, with with all the various economic changes going on in the world at the moment there's been a lot of money flocking back to investments in the US mm. Uh, which which is going to provide some level of pr- uh, protection to the U.S. economy, he said. So uh, that's an interesting time, January 2020. There's a few other things that coincide there uh, from other sources. One of them is that it's the beginning of the period of grand solar minimum. So so it is that prediction is in line with uh, solar. Um, solar cycles there you've got mm. strange noises going on I know I've got a few beeps so we've got people communicating with us all over the place yeah. which is good people are listening thanks for listening um, yes and that the grand solar minimum which lasts till 2055 yeah. doesn't it and that's this is a really crucial period if we can align to this if this is a true uh, model and there is a, a clear uh, connection to a correlation if not a causation but certainly a correlation between uh, the, the the solar minimum the grand solar minimum uh, period which we're about to enter uh, and uh, these forces that we're talking about if this is the case then this is a, this is a really key thing to think about for many people of course this is way out of the purview because it's not politics it's not direct it's not climate change it's the sun out there and yet does the sun actually have this powerful influence through its cycles yeah, we've spoken on the show before about the we work have. of Professor Valentina Zarkova, who's a mathematician and astrophysicist mm. uh, who's based in the UK at the moment. And she has done some amazing leading-edge analysis of the dynamics of the sun. Uh, and uh, in particular, she has uh, identified four different circulation patterns on the sun, uh, two of which are on the surface of the sun and the other yes. two are, are subsurface. Uh, and the, the two that are on the and those the, so there's two sets of two which are in the sort of what we call the northern and southern hemisphere of the sun, mm. um, and uh, those different cycles can come in and out of phase, so they can be in sync, uh, all in sync, or 
um, you know, a number of them can be out of sync. And what she has noticed is if we look back to the period of what was called the Maunder Minimum, where the Earth went through a particularly cold, uh, essentially a mini ice age, a cold period, at that time, two of these cycles were out of sync. Uh, and heading into this new grand solar minimum from 2020 to 2055, in her analysis, is the time frame. Uh, she's saying that all four of these cycles are going to be out of phase. Uh, so I guess that what that means is more complexity, more disruption in mm. the solar influence on the Earth and mm. the Earth's climate. Uh, and, uh, and from her point of view, uh, what it means is that we are on a trajectory of global cooling and not global warming. warming. So that's her particular perspective on that. Mm. You're resonating right now on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans. Yes, you are tuned to Future Sense and it's 10.11 and I should also mention that all of uh, our uh, shows are edited and podcast within, the, within a couple of days of going to air here on Bay FM and you can check out those at futuresense.it. On that website you can go to all those podcasts, please do, there's lots of very vital information in there. Um, thanks for your text. A couple of things I'll just mention. There's some texts here that are a little off topic, so I won't go to them. I do appreciate, uh, we do appreciate you mentioning that uh, Bay FM Online was a little bit uh, something, and we've, we seem to have fixed that now, so it's good to have that feedback immediately from the listeners. Thanks, Layla, for texting, and we, I put our general manager and our, our team onto it straight away, and I think we've solved that, so thank you. And I, I will actually reference, uh, mention this other text from someone who has, uh, who's said this, uh, about us or about you, Steve, maybe it's about both of us, says a smug, tall poppy stomping from your safe media bunker. That's us, apparently. I don't know how safe our media bunker actually is, <laughs> for a start. I mean, we've already been attacked and uh, accused of various things uh, we that we haven't mentioned here on air and all yep. sorts of other stuff, so I'm not yep. sure how safe it actually is. I know, but this is this is a well-known dynamic. I mean, as soon as you stand up and say something in public, uh, you know, mm. you're subject to everybody's different opinions, and, and we welcome that. Mm. It's, uh, it's, you know, the worst situation you can be in is everybody agreeing with you because it usually means you've got a blind spot somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. and, and, you know, I mean, the, the truth is, and we say it quite often, we certainly do not know uh, the absolute uh, certainty, with absolute certainty, uh, anything that we're saying. We are presenting information, our future sense, our sense of the future, garnered from, gathered from, and consolidated into a number of different ways of viewing uh, the future, but particularly founded in the work of Claire W. Gray's, which we mention quite often, and the model of uh, human development, of, uh, of societal and ultimately of global development evolution uh, that, we, uh, that we see uh, world affairs through, a, a frame that we see it through. It's just a frame, it's just a model, but it seems to be very, very effective at giving a, a, a quite a profound and uh, sort of apolitical, almost an apolitical perspective, which I think is, is really valuable at this time. It's very easy to be left or right, Perhaps uh, taking a center, a center place, and having a look at what's actually happening uh, with with a sort of wise eye is useful. But we're not claiming we know anything more than you do out there. Please do your own research always. On that note, I just want to quickly talk about uh, complex adaptive systems change. And uh, Claire Graves' work is essentially a complex adaptive systems analysis of human nature, yeah. uh, and uh, attempting to explain human behaviour and, and those dynamics around that. And so. Um, there, you know, of course, there's a, a vast a body of knowledge around complex adaptive systems 
uh, and how they behave and how they change at the moment. And um, we, we, I definitely uh, attempt to draw on that as much as I can. And a complex adaptive system is essentially an intelligence system. So the, the adaptive word in the middle of complex mm. systems implies that the system has the intelligence to sense its own environment and adapt its own dynamics uh, and uh, make intelligent respo- responses to the changes in the environment. And so what happens when a complex adaptive system encounters environmental change is that first and foremost the system takes notice so there's a a register within the system that change has occurred so the system takes notice it becomes aware of the change Mm. and then typically it will adapt its own behavior and what initially happens usually is that the it expands its normal envelope of behavior and uh, some of you might know that i have a a background in aviation and uh, i remember being trained many, many years ago in, in the military system in aerodynamics, and we got taught about the behavioral envelope or the, the performance envelope of an aircraft. And so um, an aircraft's performance limits in terms of you know how high it could fly, what kind of speed it could fly to, in terms of slowest and the fastest speed, and, uh, and the structural integrity of the aircraft was plotted um, by test pilots, and then they would draw up this envelope, which was basically it was like a graph, and it would mm. have a you know an envelope-shaped box, and say, okay, if you fly within this envelope, then everything's going to be cool. But if you go outside the envelope, like if you fly too fast or too high or too slow or something like that, then we can't guarantee the behaviour of the aircraft. It might fall out of the sky, or it might fall apart. And so we can think of a complex adaptive system of having the same kind of performance envelope, and. That envelope is very much dependent on the environment that it's operating within. So when the environment changes, it it also uh, ultimately shifts the shape and size of the performance envelope. Mm. And so a complex adaptive system, when it senses this change, what it does is straight away is it starts to change its behavior. And typically, it will search for the new limits of that normal behavioral envelope within which it can survive and thrive. And so from the outside, what that looks like is uh, it can look like uh, chaos because the there will be spikes in performance at, at all extremes of the complex adaptive systems behavior. Uh, for example, with the climate, when the climate has a complex adaptive system, and, and you'll just a, a subtle note there that I'm assuming that there is intelligence sitting behind the climate uh, and, it, and that it has its own capacity to adapt and respond. Uh, when its senses change, then the first thing it's likely to do, according to this recipe, uh, is it's going to start spiking its performance in all directions. So we'll get more extreme heat, more yeah. uh, extreme cold. It's like having a fever, isn't it, in a way? Well, uh, I guess that's one way to look at it, yeah. Um, and and so, you know, it steps outside of its normal performance or behavior range, and that is essentially searching for the new limits. What are the new limits of, uh, you know, what I can survive in and thrive in given these new environmental conditions? So that's something uh, that, you know, that's a, a known um, characteristic of a complex adaptive system and something that we can count on and look for when we're trying to anal- analyze what's going on in the world. The system is searching for new limits. It's trying to find its optimum operating parameters given the new conditions. And for somebody who doesn't understand the the characteristics and the dynamics of a complex adaptive system, this can look like chaos. It can look like, hell, something's gone wrong here. The system's out of control. Look at it. It's all over the place. And it's all over the place for a very uh, intelligent purpose, and that is to find what are the new limits of this envelope. Mm. Um, and then eventually, uh, once that it's gone through that, uh, taking notice and expanding its performance parameters, to find the new limits, it'll find its new sweet spot. It'll find the edges of where, you know, this envelope within which it can survive and thrive. And then there'll be a gradual return to stability within this new operating envelope. Mm. 
uh, and depending on what kind of system you're talking about, you know, the, the, the change in limits can show up as all sorts of different things. I mean, it could, it, in, in the case of climate, literally, you know, new climate characteristics in various parts of the, of the planet. Mm, yeah. um, but this, this uh, little recipe for, com- recipe for complex adaptive systems change can be applied to any complex adaptive system. So we can look at any uh, system that has human in, uh, design or human involvement basically, human uh, psychology, mm. um, psychiatry. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, you can also think about, and I have thought about uh, mental health yeah. according to this as well. So when uh, the environmental conditions change, and particularly if they change radically for a person, then the person's own complex adaptive system uh, needs to mm. uh, do that, go through that same process, go to some extremes of behavior in order to find how to cope given the new environmental mm. conditions. Uh, and uh, and so, you know often that kind of thing is, is mm. diagnosed as mental illness. And of course we ha- we have, and I've I've said on this show I think that one of the, the the biggest problem in one sense in one way of looking at it on the planet at the moment is indeed mental health, because we are actually in in such a uh, an insecure, unsafe, unstable, uh, unknown, uh, and in, within that collapse in confidence we mentioned about era of human endeavour that it's uh, it's very difficult to actually be certain about anything. So clearly that brings up, uh, you will tend to bring up your childhood, for example, issues, your childhood psychology, uh, other elements of your psychology through your life could be, you know, your, your particular narrative, your story, of course, is individual, as is mine. You don't know how that's inter- going to interface with this uh, with this uh, complex adaptive system as it's, as it's moving faster and faster every day and as we're finding it more and more difficult to be certain about anything really. So if we relate that back to current affairs now, we can see that uh, environmental conditions are changing radically for us across many different uh, disciplines and you know areas of life. Apart, and apart from the fact that in the background, you know, the, the planet is changing, the climate is changing, yeah. we've got all sorts of changes to our normal operating systems, our social systems. Uh, and with uh, discoveries like, okay, well, maybe we can't rely on the rule of law so much anymore, and maybe we can't rely on governments to, to abide by the rule of law. Um, what that means is that you've got to expect this same change dynamic to play out in societies yeah. as complex adaptive systems. People will start looking outside and stepping outside the normal boundaries of behaviour and thinking, trying to find, okay, where are the new limits here? Yeah. How, you know, what is my... Uh, operating envelope that I need to remain within or you know in, in order to thrive and survive under these new conditions and sometimes those new um, limits of the envelope will be outside the old limits okay yeah. and so that's going to look like radical extreme behavior and this is why we're seeing elements in society now saying okay we need to actually step outside the box yeah. you know we've been operating within this box it doesn't seem to be working so much anymore. So let's just figure out, you know, what's the new box look like? And um, and a normal process for a complex adaptive system is to go beyond the old boundaries to find what works under the new conditions. I guess that partly explains, perhaps, or does it explain the uh, the rise in extremism on both ends of the of the polarity? It, it does exactly yeah. explain it. You mm. know, that's the same dynamic. It's the same dynamic mm. that you would find in any complex adaptive mm. system. So it's it doesn't only explain it, but but allows us to predict it, right? Yes, and also gives it perhaps a little bit more ease in responding to it and going like, okay, these moments of extremism, wherever they're coming from, whether it's from the right or the left or from wherever, sometimes uh, are deadly and and horrible and tragic for sure and uh, 
they shouldn't be happening, but they are happening. But uh, seen as an expression of uh, pushing the boundaries, pushing the limits, trying to find, as you're saying, trying to find this new definition of, of the self within yeah. society, what's within the culture. Normal? What's the new normal? What's, what's the new box? Uh, it doesn't excuse, excuses nothing, of course, but it does uh, help to perhaps see it in uh, from a bigger perspective. Yeah. Mm. And it, you know, if we can understand human nature from this same perspective, then it can help mm. us to manage change. And it can help us to predict the kind of problems that we're going to encounter as we go through, you know, known change. And uh, back to the the timeline. So what this timeline is suggesting is that we are sliding into a period of this kind of uh, chaotic, uh, extreme behaviour within our social systems. And uh, a, a early 2020 and during 2020 seems to be a significant tipping point. For change, um, Martin Armstrong in his uh, and his computer algorithm are suggesting a, a big financial hiccup of some sort in January, and there are some other indicators also pointing to that same period, aren't there, Nick? Yeah. Well, we also we, we do look uh, often on this show, and you may completely disagree. I know some of you do. We do look at uh, a deeper astrology to these astrological cycles. We did talk about the solar minimum, minimum, the grand solar minimum. This is not an astrological cycle, but astrology uh, also factors in here, and it's certainly very interesting to investigate the movement, particularly of the outer planets uh, in our solar system and how they respond or how they uh, relate to what's going on here on Earth. And it would seem that in uh, in January 2020. January 12th, in fact, Saturn conjuncts Pluto for the first time exactly since uh, 9/11, since September the 11th, uh, to September the 9th, 2000, and well, 2001. I can't even get the dates right at the moment. Um, and that this, you know, th- there may be explosive change to structures and institutions indicated again at this time. Many of you will disagree with this, but uh, if you have a look back through history, fascinating correlations between some of the, the movements and the conjunctions and the aspect between the outer planets in our solar system. And it is our solar system. We do live within this uh, this frame, this, geome- this geometry, this vibrational frame, very powerful of a, so- a solar system traveling through space. Uh, the, the, the planets align at certain times and they seem to correlate with events and trends and, uh, and movements on the Earth. One of the interesting things that came out of uh, the recent work of Professor Valentina Zarkova as she was studying the Sun is that as the planets orbit around the Sun, at various times you know, there are more planets on one side than yeah. the other side and the, right. the mutual gravitational influence actually creates an eccentricity in the Sun's motion through yes. the galaxy. Yeah. So as the Sun, which is no doubt spiraling through the galaxy, you know, it's not on an, an exact steady course. It's actually being pulled slightly off course, very slightly by the planets as they right. move around. Mm. Very, very interesting. Mm. And that, of course, in, in turn influences the climate on the planets because it, it changes the angle and the proximity of uh, mm. the, the planet to the Sun. Very, very interesting stuff. And, and of course, uh, 9-11 is something very close to your heart, Nick, because you were in New York. And I was there, yeah. yes. Yeah. And uh, just on that, because we mentioned it, we were talking about it briefly off here this morning, you know, that there was something in me that didn't trust the official version straight away, having living in New York, being in New York at the time, and uh, having the 19 terrorists' faces thrown up on the screen the very next day, and the passport that happened to have been found down at the foot of the, the collapsed and uh, trade towers, and all those sort of factors. In pretty good condition, I understand. In very good condition. Well, they could identify the guy. I mean, straight away uh, there were I, I had big question marks in my in my intellect and in my heart, in my just knowing that there was something not right about the situation. But of course, that's 
happened and the results of 9-11 are seen right throughout world politics and we are suffering from and have the effect of those results still in this in this time of course and so the same way that mm. uh, that particular event uh, demonstrated explosive change to structures and institutions we have a similar energy indicator for january 2020 which coincides with uh, martin armstrong's computer saying that okay a huge economic disruption uh, which could start uh, late December or uh, January 2020 and continue, he's saying, through 2021 and beyond. And he's particular flagged, particularly flagged uh, January the 18th as uh, the bottoming out, or in his words, a hard economic landing uh, is indicated from this economic uh, confidence model of his, uh, which is just six days after that uh, astrological influence. And mm. it's um, it's very interesting to find correlations between astrological alignments and other predictions which are from, you know, I guess more mainstream or what mainstream people would regard as more concrete and reliable sources. Yeah. Um, but the timing is always always seems to be a difficult one, doesn't it? I mean, sometimes when, when I've tried to make these correlations, I see, okay, there was an alignment there which suggests something, but then nothing really showed up in current affairs until maybe sometime after that. Mm. So... Um, it's a complexity, isn't it? Because, it is you know, complex. you, you can't, I certainly, we wouldn't say, I certainly wouldn't say that, uh, you know, two planets in a certain configuration in the sky out there in our solar system are causing something here. That is not the case. I don't subscribe to that myself. What I, what I see in astrology as a sort of transrational science is there is a reflection in astrology which is readable that can direct us to interpret events on the planet and to to be aware of trends and uh, hot spots that may or may not appear as uh, in our physical reality as some sort of event or other. Yeah. So uh, anyway, the bottom line is, and as I said at the start, you know, we're not suggesting that these are going to be fully accurate predictions. They may not even come true. But what we are getting by looking at multiple sources is the suggestion of a particular theme for changes that may occur around this time. So yeah. January 2020 is, is looking mm. like it's going to be significant. And then later in the year, of course, we have the US elections in November. Yes. Uh, 2020 and uh, November 3rd. Yeah, that's that's a big one, isn't it? And uh, as Armstrong's predicted, uh, th there's likely to be uh, a, uh, a reaction to a response to and possibly even a surge in violence around those US elections. You can imagine why that could happen, of course, with Trump probably going to wanting to be re-elected and whoever else is up against that in in this climate that we have on the planet now of instability and a collapse in confidence. So I can, you can imagine that uh, the next US elections uh, may be something that we've never seen before. Yeah. We th probably yeah. thought that last time in 2016. But Think back to all of the stuff that was going on in the media around the time of the previous election, then you know, the scandal that came out about the Cambridge Analytica yeah. Uh, influence of social media in terms of shifting voters one way or the other and uh, ask yourself how is the general public in the USA going to trust the election result in November mm. uh, 2020 it's a it's a big big question and something that we need to watch very closely and um, gosh time is flying today isn't it time is flying um, today so let's let me just quickly um, skip ahead now and talk about mm. a couple of other significant milestones so um, got a bit of uh, sound leak happening there so apologies for that if you can hear that in the background. Um, so Martin Armstrong's computer is suggesting that this economic uh, disruption is just part of an, an overall decline and uh, accompanied, of course, by a decline in confidence uh, towards government generally. And, and in the bigger uh, scheme of things, you know, this fits very much with uh, our analysis of this paradigm shift 
and uh, it gives us some idea of the timing of the the decline of the dominant um, mm. scientific industrial paradigm and the emergence of this next relativistic uh, human humanistic and network centric way of being human which you know brings a, a different quality of, of being human with it um, of course we've got to include the the uh, slingshot effect in the middle where we're sliding we're not we're not just going straight from the the uh, modern paradigm to the postmodern or relativistic we're actually sliding backwards to the old systems where we get this slingshot effect happening and the, the tension building uh, and you know there'll be a, a an emergence of chaos and then a breaking point where uh, things tip over and then a gradual movement of stability into this uh, this new paradigm of some sort. Um, other things that are showing up on the radar here on the timeline are uh, forecast increasing food prices due to crop losses uh, in starting about 2022. Mm. And that's from Martin Armstrong's computer and it also coincides with a prediction by Professor Valentina Sarkova, who said that uh, particularly, she says, between 2028 and 2032, uh, that we can expect major food shortages. And she, in a talk recently that she gave uh, late last year in London, she said that uh, these shortages are going to be so bad that they demand some kind of preparation and anticipation by, by governments. And, and that in itself, you know, is a very interesting comment. And uh, when we relate it back to this um, uh, collapsing confidence in government and the, the obvious collapse in the performance and the capacity of governments to manage certain issues, mm. then yes. it starts to paint a troubling picture uh, for us globally and, and for humanity that we are moving into a period where all of the things that we have, have also always thought were our anchors, those things that we can rely on, the institutions, you know, the rule of law, all these sorts of things, all of a sudden mm. they seem to be cutting loose and we're, we're kind of left floating in uncertainty mm. and uh, with the potential for serious social issues to arise as we move forward through the 2020s. Yeah. Um, take a breath, folks. Take a breath. Take a breath. Yeah, take a breath. Exactly. Just take a breath. And, uh, and again, I just reiterate, as I feel to do so today, that you know whatever feels right to you, whatever's tuning, what is resonating with you, go with that. Go and do your own research. If you claim now that doesn't ring for me, fine. That's absolutely true because we don't uh, claim to know anything here. We're just offering our perspective, a certain way of looking at things. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. 10.39 here on Future Sense with Steve McDonald and myself, Nick Jeans. Thanks for all your texts this morning. We can't get to all of them. Quite a few have come in today. Um, thanks to you, Elaine. You don't have to put your name on it, by the way, folks. You don't have to do that. But it's nice if you do. Um, it says, you guys are so on to what really matters, the real and the deep. I find your conversations each week very nourishing and sustaining. Thank you so much. Love you heaps. Thank oh, you. Thank you. That's very beautiful. Lovely. And another one from uh, someone else, completely different topic. We are talking about uh, the Earth and the Moon and the Sun before, of course, uh, the solar system. The Earth supposedly spins at 1,000 miles an hour. I'm not sure. I think it's faster than that, but whatever it is. The Moon also spins, yet we, also, yet we always only see one side of the Moon. Miraculous synchronicity. Or oh, it is curious, isn't it, the, the structure of the Earth, Moon, and Sun in this solar system. There are many it? mysteries. Um, it's almost as if it was by design. Perhaps. Almost, actually. But we're not going to yeah. go there today because we, d- we don't really know. No, we've got other things to talk about. <laughs> um, let's get back to this timeline. So yep. uh, we, we got to, um, where did we get to? We got to talking about uh, some of the um, disruptions to food supply yep. and crazy weather uh, that are showing up in different predictions from mm. different sources. 
And um, by 2024, uh, again, Martin Armstrong's computer is suggesting uh, strange weather events. Um, and, uh, you know, this, this is, I guess, not unexpected given what's mm. going on for us right now. Yeah. Um, the repeating cycle of revolution, similar to the one that we had in the 1960s, and which is also showing up this year, is going to repeat again in 2024. And Armstrong, is, is, uh, his computer is actually suggesting that it could be an extreme example there, and, and uh, he's even flagged the possibility of an American civil war hmm. breaking out sometime between 2024 and 2026. And um, I guess that's not hard to imagine, given the disruptions that we've seen there. It's a, it's a big one, isn't it? That I, I looked at that and I thought, is that really a possibility? But if you really tease apart some of the forces at play in that country, it's not unreasonable to suspect that something no, along I mean, those lines may you know, occur. All the ingredients are there. I mean, yeah. if, you know, if it was a cake and you were going to bake it, you know, and what, what would you need? A whole bunch of guns, you know, a whole bunch of differing opinions um, and, and, you know, differences in prosperity mm. between different states and those sorts of things. I mean, the, the ingredients are there. And interestingly, if we look back to the previous paradigm shift, so when uh, the world was, you know, going through the, the last sort of phase of this transition out of the agricultural era and into the modern scientific, there was a civil war in the USA, and it was actually between those two worldviews. Yeah. So you, in the South, you had the agricultural mindset, yes. which you believed in slavery. Yes. In the North, you had the, the more modern uh, you know, scientific mm. industrial perspective, and they went to war. Mm. Um, so it's Even not... Even though they're quite, the North are quite happy to still using, use slaves in certain ways and own them themselves and other that, things like that because that's that was right. the way that they're economically uh, viable and you know, of course. beneficial I mean, to them. There is the so. argument that the slavery didn't go away. They just started paying the slaves. Yeah, so. yeah, pretty much. Um, but... But, you know, here we are again in another paradigm shift where worldviews are changing, human values are changing, and so it's not beyond uh, possibility that that same kind of thing could happen. And I think mm. I mentioned last week that this shift that we're going through right now ought to be, you know, if not the last, one of the last significant shifts uh, and that is punctuated by violence and, and warfare. Let's um, hope so. Because we're, God the, bless. the indications are that we're moving into a more peaceful way of being human mm. in the future. Um, so um, in that same year, 2024, we've got mm. uh, peak drought being uh, forecast by Armstrong's computer also and the end of uh, GDP growth globally. So a, a key aspect of the scientific industrial era has been this idea of everything's got to grow all the time and it looks like 2024 is going to actually be uh, you know, a significant change to that when, when world growth ends. Yeah, I mean, it's very, it's very true that um, we are now... We are now seeing um, a, a revolution similar to the 1960s. I'm just flipping back to that for a minute. Yeah. Uh, with the civil unrest that was accompanied by that at the time, of Psychedelic course. Psychedelic revolution. Psychedelic revolution, yeah. also uh, 1968 in France, and uh, the Democratic Convention in of 68 also in um, uh, in Chicago, I think it was, wasn't it? But great disruptions there. Um, all sorts of factors uh, seem to be repeating in, yeah. uh, again Music at this time. Music festival culture. Music festival culture. Getting beaten down by um, the dominant paradigm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> don't you just love? It? Don't you just love being beaten lots by of, the dominant paradigm? Lots of similarities. Yeah. Yeah. So, and these these reflections, of course, are not circular. It's important to remember that we're not just returning to the same thing. We're right. we're, we're coming back to a resonance on a on a spiralic a higher spiral. level, so to speak. Another another level of, of expression of that same dynamic. Exactly, and, and also uh, around 2024, and there's some argument as to the exact date of this, but we've got, from an astrological point of view, 
review USA's Pluto return. Do you want to just speak very briefly to that? Yeah, the Pluto return. So, of course, uh, the uh, one aspect of astrology is that you can determine, as as per someone's birth date, birth time, the uh, the birth chart of a nation when when a country was established. So, uh, there is that moment uh, where um, Pluto comes back to the same place that it was when you were born, or in the case of the United States, when the United States was born, which is about 268 years ago. I think that's the cycle of Pluto, whatever it is. The long cycle of Pluto comes back to the same place that it was at when the USA was established. This, in astrology, uh, indicates uh, quite uh, a revolution revolution or revelation too, a revolution and revelation of uh, of change and the, the, the bringing to the surface of things that are hidden in order for transformation to occur and for a new beginning to occur, for a new birth to occur, in fact. You could stretch it that far, a new birth. Interesting. Mm. Moving forward then, uh, it seems like 2028 is going to be another pivotal year with uh, Armstrong's computer predicting significant climate events, uh, a, a turning point in terms of climate change. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, the beginning of major widespread food shortages, according to uh, Professor mm. Valentina Sarkova, who's been looking at the influence of uh, the sun on the Earth's climate and how that might influence agriculture. It's interesting. Um, it's exactly pretty much 100 years after the, uh, the, the Great Depression. We're talking about this era, yeah, the, late twen- the late 2020s into 2030s. That is interesting. Mm. And, and then uh, the other thing that we need to factor in here through these uh, periods of solar minimum uh, and we are so we are going through this thing called grand solar minimum, which uh, they're saying will last from 2020 to 2055. But within that, you've got a number of solar cycles, yeah. and so one of the minimums is this year, uh, and then uh, we'll be moving into another one roughly about 11 or so years later from uh, after now. Mm. Um, and uh, during those periods, the Earth's protection against cosmic radiation is greatly reduced because the solar wind, which normally blows over the planet, is greatly reduced due to low uh, activity, sunspot activity on the sun. Uh, and so we get exposed to a higher incidence of cosmic ray impact, which um, there are some scientific studies already saying, you know, which have health impacts for humans. Mm-hmm. And if you, there's, there's been, because we're in solar minimum now, there's been a bit of research going on with high flying aircraft. And uh, I've seen videos of um, researchers taking little test tubes of water on high-level flights, and you can actually see uh, bubble trails in the test tube where a, a cosmic, coming a through cosmic the, radiation particle yeah, will, coming through the aircraft particle comes through the water yep. and actually leaves a trail of bubbles. And you've got to wonder you know what's happening inside our bodies mm. because we're also subject to that kind of uh, and it's really important folks i mean do you agree with this i mean can you just expanding our consciousness and awareness just for a moment if you if you haven't thought about that about the influence of cosmic radiation we are one planet in one solar system in the outskirts of a, a fairly minor galaxy the milky way apparently uh, and we're traveling through space at a huge rate with all those planets revolving around the sun and off we go and we are moving through continually fields of cosmic radiation in the cosmos, most of which we don't really understand. Some of what we do, um, but we, we don't really know what the influence is. To, to not factor that into having an influence on the planet would seem to be, uh, well, naive, actually. And I think we're moving into an era where these factors, these multifaceted, complex factors of influence on our being are being uh, discovered, explored, and uh, hopefully a bit more understood as we go forward. But to take that into consideration, that uh, everything that is happening on this planet may also be influenced by cosmic radiation coming into the planet. Yeah, I've been doing a bit of uh, 
background study on my, of my own, uh, particularly looking at NASA's uh, mm. Interstellar Boundary Explorer oh, yeah. mission, which involves the Voyager 1 and 2 craft, mm-hmm. which are at the moment out around the boundary of our, our solar system's yeah. bubble. Um, you know, as we're sort of bursting through the galaxy, you know, we, we take with us our own weather, which is localised due to the sun's activity and the sun's, um, you know, solar wind, which blows over. You always take the weather with you as the solar wind. Exactly. But uh, so what, what's happening, though, is we're transiting out of what's been called the local cloud, which is a particular, particular sort of um, cloud within our galaxy that we've been flying through as a solar system. And we're moving um, across... Uh, or through the boundary of that cloud and into the boundary of another cloud, which is called the G cloud. And, and mm-hmm. with that, these Voyager craft are already uh, picking up uh, changes in what's called the, the interstellar wind or weather. So, um, you know, the natural movement of uh, charged particles and those sorts of things through the interstellar space. And um, with our solar system being exposed to essentially different weather, we can expect that to have a, a trickle-down effect you mm-hmm. know, to what's happening here in the planet. And I'll continue to do some study and talk about that in future programs uh, I guess we're um, we're running a little short of time here so I might yeah. just quickly forge through um, here to now 2032 so we were talking about 2028 the next big um, blip on the radar here is in 2032 where there's a lot of predictions which are coming together and these predictions are making me think that 2032 will be a pivotal, a pivotal year in terms of this global paradigm shift and it may well be the major tipping point where the dominant, current dominant paradigm of this scientific industrial worldview uh, falls from grace and we see the emergence of a, of a dominant um, relativistic worldview at a planetary level where, in other words, most of the, the influential organisations and people on the planet will be thinking a different way, mm-hmm. in a more humanistic way, in a more network-centric way and uh, a more generally a much more communal and collaborative theme and also more connected to nature in all its in yes. manifestations too that reconnection with uh, the earth and the, the notion of guardianship uh, rather than what we've been doing for yeah. hundred years of abusing using and misusing uh, the resources of this of this beautiful planet yeah and some of the things that are making me uh, think that way are that uh, this economic confidence model that uh, shows up in uh, was part of Martin Armstrong's computer algorithm is saying that we're, we're coming to the end of private sector dominance in 2032. So mm-hmm. um, if you think about that and you think about the rise of corporates and you think about corporate capture of our government institutions uh, and, and the general you know, massive widespread, widespread control that corporations have at the moment uh, and the, the end of this uh, period of private sector dominance is coming to a close in 2032, um, and there'll be the beginning of a new wave, which will be public sector dominance. And the public sector dominance will be different than the previous public sector dominance. Yes, that's important to note. We're not going back to anything here. We're no. going forward to something completely different, a different structure of systems, a network, yep. which is leading into uh, even a further expression. So this alternating pattern that's showing up in his uh, economic confidence model equates to the pattern that I found in Claire Graves' work where mm. each uh, paradigm or layer or stage of, of uh, human development is characterised as either individually oriented or communally oriented. And we could say that the private sector dominance equates to individual uh, themes as found in Claire Graves's work and the public sector dominance equates to the communal themes as found in Claire Graves's work. Yes. So there are, there's there's a, a strong correlation there, mm. which is making me reasonably confident to say that this looks like it could be the major tipping point in terms of global paradigm shift. Yeah. 
Um, other things that are showing up in uh, in his computer predictions are uh, a quote a general fragmentation of Western society, including the USA, which may split into four regions. So there's a possibility raised there of the breakup of the USA. Perhaps uh, you know, not not the same, but uh, maybe we can compare it in some way to the breakup of the USSR last century mm. uh, yeah. and uh, he's also flagged the possible breakup of the United Kingdom mm. around that time and, and also interestingly Australia yeah. uh, West Australia becoming independent yeah yeah, yeah. so it's, that's, that's a, uh, not an unlikely scenario that's been flagged for quite a long time yeah even there um, also around that time it's predicted that the global economic power base will shift from the USA to China and, and you know clear there are clear indications that that is a shift that's underway at the moment already um, again, another key year for uh, changes in our climate and also potential disruption to the Earth, Earth's magnetic field. And all of those things you know, fit with what we know about the climate cycles, about this period of grand solar minimum and about uh, around that time, you know, we'll be going through another solar minimum, which will be in the middle of the grand solar minimum period. And in case uh, you you missed a mention on the one of our previous episodes or shows, um, the grand solar minimum period is four hundred and something years. Yeah. So, so we have these eleven year solar cycles, uh, and then there are the larger cycles uh, on top of that. And mm-hmm. that, that's I think it's four hundred and thirty something years, mm-hmm. roughly. But I'm, I may be mm-hmm. not exactly right there. I found it really interesting just in your in your timeline here to the, yeah. the uh, in 2032 maybe just in the last two minutes just speak to this briefly the impact of second tier higher consciousness and we're talking here about Claire W Graves again and his model past the first tier up to uh, the layer six stage six that we've been talking about today the movement we're moving into the into the uh, the more egalitarian the communal by nature. Uh, way of being but beyond that the second tier is something else and you, you're suggesting here that uh, consciousness may reach a tipping point by necessity due to social systems collapse by 2032 which will uh, accelerate uh, and out of need out of necessity the emergence of second tier consciousness on the planet what does that mean and i'm putting you on the spot for two minutes here but uh, it's all right yeah. um look it, it first thing i'll say is it's very complex because we've got multiple paradigm shifts underway and we generally uh, dumb it down, so to speak, when we're talking on this show to this shift be- beyond the modern scientific era and into the relativistic uh, communal-themed era. Um, and that's in terms of the dominant global paradigm. In other words, if you stood back and looked at the Earth, that would you know, be the, the first thing that became apparent in terms of the, the uh, worldview that shapes global activity. But within that, you've got layers and layers and layers and layers. And so there are all of, of the less complex layers of consciousness such as the agricultural layer and the the warlike layer and the tribal layer Mm. um, they are all still uh, existing on the planet and in different places where the life conditions are less complex people are living in different ways where the life conditions are more complex complex they're living in different ways and this is all a function of the adaptation of human consciousness to fit with the the background complexity of the life conditions and so we also have a certain number of people who are ahead of the mainstream here who have been exposed to very, very complex life conditions and their consciousness has adapted into what Claire Graves called second-tier consciousness, mm. which equates to essentially a quantum leap, a massive leap in capacity. And we know that Graves picked up some of these people in his research back in the 1950s. Very, very small percentage, but there were some around, and that percentage is slowly growing over time. So by the time we get to 2032, there's going to be more people on the planet who are operating from that place 
they, uh, by definition, will have a much deeper and greater understanding of complex systems and a greater capacity to work with and influence complex systems. And we should see in response to what looks like a massive hiccup and milestone in our chaotic change process around that time, a stronger response and a stronger presence from that level of consciousness. Mm, beautiful. Um, and thanks for the last couple of texts. Uh, one person has just written, 2032, maybe the shift from competition to cooperation. Well, yes, that's, that's one way of putting it for sure. Absolutely. Uh, thanks for that. And um, also thanks to our, uh, our associate, um, Professor Ross Hill, often a guest on the show when he's in town, who wrote that the correct answer to my question about the second tier was go and listen to the second tier episode of the podcast. <laughs> uh, so that's a good good thing. So go and do that. And you can do that at futuresense.it. That's the website, futuresense.it. It's very straightforward. You can go straight to the podcast series. We've got to say goodbye. Pregnancy, birth and beyond coming up. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Nick. Next week. See you in the future. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.